in for Pastor Chris today, I kind of like the uh, substitute preacher who, as he got up to preach one Sunday morning, noticed a piece of old cardboard filling the gap in one of the one of the beautiful but broken stained glass windows. You know, he said, standing in for such an eminent preacher today, I feel a bit like that cardboard in the stained glass window, a poor substitute for the real thing. Well, after the service, an elder member of the congregation greeted him warmly at the door with these words. I want you to know, he said, that you weren't just a piece of cardboard this morning. You were a real pain. It's not really the response I'm looking for after the service today, but hope all of you have had a good summer so far. I don't know about you, but at this point, I'm looking forward to fall. Fall is actually my favorite time of the year, and I guess one of the main reasons for that is because fall is football season. Uh, in my opinion, there's nothing much better than watching a high school or college uh, football game. As a youth minister for 15 years and then as the proud parent of a high school football player, I've spent countless Friday nights cheering on local high school athletes at Stanton River and Liberty and E.C. Glass. Not at Brookville, Danny. But <laughs> in, watching, in watching all those games over the years, I've observed that there are three basic types of players that you can always find on the sideline. First group are what I would call the compromisers. These are the players that are comfortable right where they are. They are content to sit on the bench. They're just glad to be on the team, especially if the team is winning. They don't seem to care if they ever get in the game, if they ever get a chance to play, the compromisers. Second group are what I would call the complainers. These players are always found at the very far end of the bench, having sort of a pity party for themselves. They've been taken out of the game because they missed a block or they missed a tackle or they fumbled the ball, they had a penalty called against them. They've messed up in some way and now they're moaning and groaning, griping, complaining. The complainers. The third group then, are what I would call the competitors. These players are located right next to the coach. They are grabbing him by the shirt, begging to get into the game. They can't stand to be on the sidelines. They want in the action. They want to play. They want to make a contribution and help the team. We're going to see all three types of players portrayed as we look at the life of Moses together this morning. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. Exodus chapter 2, uh, and follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 11. It says this, One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Well, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him or buried him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? The man answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Are you going to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? 
Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, he said, how is it that you come home so early today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered our flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat with us. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. Here we have Moses, the compromiser. As we see from these verses, Moses actually killed a man in Egypt. Moses then fled to Midian to avoid being killed himself by the Pharaoh. While in Midian, Moses married a Gentile woman named Zipporah, and then he went to work for her father. Nothing else is written about Moses for the next four decades. Nothing. Why is that? Simply because nothing significant happened in his life during that time. He just grabbed his robe, grabbed his shepherd's crook each morning, and went to work. So, when we arrive at the end of Exodus chapter 2, Moses has spent the last 40 years, half of his life at this point, doing nothing but herding sheep for his father-in-law. According to Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, Moses at this point is now 80 years old and he has accomplished very little in his life. He's become a compromiser, content, the Bible said, to sit on the bench, content literally to sit and watch sheep. But in Exodus chapter 3, God gives Moses a major wake-up call. All of us are familiar with the story of Moses and the burning bush. In spite of his background, Moses, of all people in the world, is asked to deliver, to save the Israelites from their bondage in Egypt. You know what? As followers of Christ, God has called us, he's called you and me, to deliver, to make disciples of those around us who are in bondage to sin. That's what the Great Commission is all about. And the message we are to take to people today is the very same message that Moses was to take to his people, the good news of God's salvation. A legend recounts the return of Jesus to heaven after his time here on earth. He returned bearing the marks of his earthly pilgrimage with its cruel cross and shameful death. The angel Gabriel approached him and said, Master, you must have suffered terribly for the people down there. I did, said Jesus. And Gabriel continued, Do they now know about how much you love them and how much you did for them? Oh no, said Jesus, not yet. Right now only a handful of people in Palestine know. Gabriel was perplexed. Then what have you done, he asked to let all people know about your love for them. Well, I've asked Peter, James, John, and a few others to tell people about me. 
Those who are told will in turn tell others, and the gospel will be spread to the farthest reaches of the globe. Ultimately, all of humankind will hear about me and what I've done on their behalf. Gabriel frowned and looked skeptical. He knew that people weren't very dependable. Yes, he said, but what, what if Peter and James and John grow weary? What if the people who come after them forget? And what if, way down in the 21st century, people get too busy to bother telling others about you? Haven't you made any other plans? No, I've made no other plans, Gabriel, Jesus answered. I'm counting on them. Now, God can certainly accomplish his purposes without any of us. But there's also a sense in which God is counting on each of us, just as he was counting on Moses and just like he counted on the apostles in the early church. Do you know how many believers attended the first service in the early church? Anyone? According to Acts 1.15, the group numbered about 120. And that group of 120 people literally changed their world. Now look around you. We have more people than that in our worship service this morning. What was the key to growth in the early church? Was it their style of worship service? Was it a dynamic music ministry or a tremendous youth and children's program? Was it Peter's wonderful expository sermons? No, no, and no. Don't get me wrong, all of those things are important, but the early church wasn't consumed with any of those things. What they were consumed with, though, was an incredible passion for telling others about Jesus Christ. Let me suggest to you that the early church grew by leaps and bounds because they eagerly and enthusiastically shared their faith with anyone and everyone they could find. Do you know where the, where the word enthusiasm comes from? I challenge you to look this up in your Webster's Dictionary, or if you don't have one of those anymore, you can ask Siri this afternoon. Um, the word enthusiasm comes from two Greek words. En, which means in, and theu, or theos, which means God. The word enthusiasm literally means in God, inspired or possessed by God. As Christians, we should be the most enthusiastic people in all the world because we are in God. We're possessed by him, and our foremost desire, our passion, our inspiration should be to share his love with others. The question then is this, are we willing? Am I willing to get off the bench and go to work? The truth is that most of us would rather sit around and make excuses. And that's exactly what Moses did when he was confronted by God. That brings us now to Moses, the complainer. Moses registers three basic complaints. 
he offers God three different excuses in this passage. The first excuse he offers is that of his training. Look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses says, God, you've got the wrong guy. Who am I? I'm just a shepherd. I've been doing nothing but herding sheep for the last 40 years of my life. I don't know how to do anything else. I'm certainly not qualified to lead the Israelites out of their bondage in Egypt. How many of us use that same excuse? We say, God, I'm not qualified to be a Sunday school teacher. I'm not qualified to be a volunteer in vacation Bible school. I'm not qualified to work in the nursery or help with the children's programs. I'm not qualified to mentor youth. I'm not qualified to sing in a choir. I'm not qualified to visit people in the hospital or nursing homes. I'm not qualified to witness to my family and friends. What are you thinking, God? I'm not an evangelist. I didn't go to Bible college or seminary. Witnessing, leading people to Christ, that should be left up to the pastor and the staff. After all, we're paying them, right? We say, God, that is outside of my comfort zone. I've never done that before. And what we're really saying is, I'm not going to start now. Moses, like us, offered the excuse of his training. Secondly, then, Moses offers the excuse of his testimony. Look at uh, Exodus chapter 4. Verse 1, then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord surely did not appear to you. Moses says, God, you've got to be kidding. The Israelites will recognize me. Somebody will know who I am. They'll remember that I committed murder and then fled the country for my life. They will never believe that you would send someone like me to deliver them. I messed up the last time I was there, and if I go back, I'm just going to mess up again. Does that one sound familiar? Again, we offered the same excuse. God, those people have heard me say things I shouldn't have said. Those people have seen me do things I shouldn't have done. I'll be a hypocrite if I witness to them. I've done worse things in life than they have. They won't believe me. They won't even listen to me. I'll be a failure. So what's the point in even trying? A wise person once said, the man who makes no mistakes does not normally make anything at all. See, a life spent making mistakes is not only more honorable but also much more useful than a life spent doing nothing. Moses gives the excuse of his testimony. And then thirdly, Moses gives the excuse of his tongue. Go forward to Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. Again, Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am, of slow, I am slow of speech, and slow of tongue. Moses saves his best excuse for last. 
He says, hello, God. Remember that speech impediment you gave me? I can't address Pharaoh in the royal court. You know how I stutter and stammer. And besides that, I wouldn't even know what to say. What excuse do we get? God, I don't know the right words. I'll say the wrong thing. Nobody will understand me. And I won't be able to answer any of their questions, that's for sure. I might even offend someone by something I say. So it'd be better for me not to say anything at all. Moses offers the excuses of his training, his testimony, and his tongue, just like we do today. Well, what was God's response to Moses? Look back at Exodus chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. The Lord said to Moses, what is that in your hand? Moses said, a staff. And God said, throw it on the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. It's important for us to realize here that the staff of Moses is the instrument and symbol of his present condition. This is his shepherd's crook. It's symbolic of his present occupation and lifestyle, which is all he has, all he knows, and all that stands between himself and God's calling for his life. And what does God tell Moses to do with that staff? He says, lay it down. Throw it on the ground. Surrender control of it so that I can begin to work through you. And the very moment when Moses obeys, God begins to perform amazing and miraculous deeds with that staff. He immediately transforms it into a snake, as we read a few moments ago. Then in Exodus 7, he uses it to turn the Nile River into blood. In Exodus 17, he even uses it to get water out of a rock. So what is God's response to us and our excuses? I think there are two possible applications here, both of which are worthy of our attention. First of all, God can take whatever is in our hands. He can take whatever is in our hands, no matter how small or seemingly insignificant, and use it in mighty ways for his glory. In this case, he used a shepherd with a staff. In our Sunday school lesson this morning from Judges chapter 4, he used a housewife with a tent peg. The simple truth is that God can perform miracles with five little stones or with five pieces of bread and a couple of fish. He will use whatever time, talents, and treasure that we offer him. God wants to accomplish incredible things using the very same gifts and abilities and resources that he has so graciously blessed us with. The second application is spelled out for us in Matthew 16, 24, where Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross 
and follow me. Just as Moses was commanded by God to lay down his staff, we as believers are told to deny ourselves, to lay down those things which come between us and God. So in this case, what could our staff be? Obviously, it could be a bad habit, an unhealthy relationship, or a secret sin that we struggle with repeatedly. But it doesn't have to be anything quite so offensive. Like Moses, our staff could simply be our lifestyle, our comfort zone, whatever that is for each of us. It could be sports, television, music, video games, our car, our house, our friends, our job, even our family. Again, none of those things are bad in themselves, but if they occupy a more prominent role in our lives than our relationship with God, if they take so much of our time and energy that God has to take a back seat, then we need to lay them down. A man named Jack was walking along a steep cliff one day when he accidentally got too close to the edge and fell. On the way down, he grabbed a branch, which temporarily stopped his fall. He looked down and to his horror saw that the canyon fell straight down for more than a thousand feet. He knew he couldn't hang on to the branch forever and there was no way for him to climb up the steep wall of the cliff. So Jack began yelling for help, hoping that someone passing by would hear him and lower a rope or something. Help! Help! Is anyone up there? Help! He yelled for hours, but no one heard. He was about to give up when he finally heard a voice. Jack? Jack, can you hear me? Yes, yes, I can hear you. I'm down here. I can see you, Jack. Are you all right? Yes, but who are you and where are you? I am the Lord, Jack. I'm everywhere. The Lord? You mean God? Yes, that's me. God, please help me. I promise if you'll just get me down from here, I'll stop sinning. I'll be a really good person. I'll serve you for the rest of my life. Easy on the promises, Jack. Let's just get you down from there. Then we can talk. Here's what I want you to do. Listen carefully. I'll do anything, Lord. Just tell me what to do. Okay. Let go of the branch. What? I said, let go of the branch. Trust me. Just let go. There was a long silence. Finally, Jack yelled, Help! Help! Is anybody else up there? All of us at times in our life have felt like Jack. We say that we want to know the will of God, but when God does challenge us to do something, we often don't feel like we can handle it. It sounds too scary or too difficult. A large part of discipleship is simply trusting God, trusting that he knows what's best for us, and trusting that he will always be there for us. 
when he says, let go of the things that stand between you and me and trust me with your life, that does sound pretty scary. But when we're willing to let go, we find freedom and safety in his hands. Moses, after 80 years, laid down his staff and became a competitor for God. Starting at the age of 80, starting at the age of 80, Moses confronted Pharaoh, pronounced plagues upon Egypt, freed the Israelites from their bondage, led them across the Red Sea and through the wilderness. Moses even met with God personally on Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments directly from him. Moses lived to be 120 years old. He spent only the last third of his life, 40 years, as a competitor. Yet what's remembered about Moses? Is he remembered as a compromiser or a complainer or a competitor? The 11th chapter of Hebrews, which is sometimes called the roll call of the faithful or the faith hall of fame, devotes seven verses, seven verses in that chapter to talking about Moses as a man of great faith and courage, a competitor. There's not one negative word about Moses that's recorded in Hebrews chapter 11. Then we begin Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, with these words. Therefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us do what? Lay aside, lay down every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In other words, don't waste your life standing in the field. Stop standing on the sidelines. Stop sitting on the bench. Stop sitting in the pew. Lay down whatever it is that's standing between you and God. Get rid of it and get in the game. Run the race. Serve the Lord. You know, one of the greatest things about being on God's team, about being a Christian, is that he wants everyone to run. He wants everyone to play. He wants all of us to be his competitors. Moses is now known as one of the greatest leaders in human history. Though he got a late start, he became a tremendous competitor for God. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul became a great competitor. In Philippians 3, 13 and 14, Paul says, This one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and pressing forward, reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. This morning, as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to forget about the mistakes of our past. God has. He's removed them as far as the east is from the west. We need to stop moaning 
groaning, mumbling, grumbling, griping, complaining, and making excuses. We need to stop feeling sorry for ourselves and get in the game, run the race, serve the Lord. We need to be competitors for him. On New Year's Day, 1929, Georgia Tech played UCLA in the Rose Bowl. I doubt if any of you saw that game. But in that game, a UCLA player named Roy Riggles recovered a fumble, but somehow got confused and started running in the wrong direction down the field. He ran 65 yards before one of his own teammates, Benny Lom, tackled him just in front of the goal line. Otherwise, Riggles would have scored a safety for the opposing team. Well, UCLA was unable to move the ball, and four plays later, Georgia Tech blocked their punt and scored a safety anyway. Since that strange play happened in the first half, everyone watching the game was asking the same question. What will Coach Nibs Price do with Roy Riggles in the second half? Players filed off the field, went into the dressing room, and sat down on the benches and floor. All except Regals. He put his blanket around his shoulders, sat down in the corner, put his face in his hands, and cried like a baby. A coach usually has a great deal to say to his team during halftime, but that day, Coach Price was quiet. No doubt he was trying to decide what to do with Regals. Then the timekeeper came in and announced that there were only three minutes till playtime. Price looked at the team and said simply, men, the same team that played the first half will start the second. Players got up and started out, all but Regals. He didn't budge. Coach looked back and called to him again, but still he didn't move. Coach Price went over to where Regal sat and said, Roy, didn't you hear me? The same team that played the first half will start the second. Then Roy Regals looked up, and Price saw that his cheeks were wet with the strong man's tears. Coach, he said, I can't do it to save my life. I've ruined you. I've ruined the University of California. I've ruined myself. I couldn't face that crowd in the stadium to save my life. Then Coach Price put his hand on Regal's shoulder and said, Roy, Get up and get on back out there. The game is only half over. So Roy Riggles went back. And those Georgia Tech players will tell you they have never seen a man play football the way he did in that second half. The grace of God is like Roy's coach. At times we feel as if we've messed up so badly that we just want to give up throw in the towel. God doesn't give up on us, though. He says, get up and get on back out there. The game isn't over yet. You see, the gospel of the grace of God is the gospel of the second chance and the third chance and the hundredth chance. We fumble the ball continually. But God never tosses us out of the game. He just keeps cheering us on. We're going to sing 
about God's amazing grace again in just a few moments. But how about you this morning? If you had to place yourself in one of the three categories we've talked about today, which one would it be? Are you a competitor? Are you eagerly and enthusiastically using your God-given talents and abilities to make a contribution and help the team? Maybe you're a compromiser. You're comfortable right where you are. You're content to sit on the, the bench, to sit in the pew. You're just glad to be a Christian, glad to be a church member, glad to be part of the team. Or maybe you're a complainer. You've messed up somehow. Or maybe you've even been hurt by somebody else on the team. You were in the game. You were running the race. But now, for some reason, you're not. Maybe, like Moses, you just feel like you're unqualified to do anything for God. Consider the following. As we read today, Moses stuttered. David's armor didn't fit. John Mark was undependable. Hosea married a prostitute. Amos had only experience as a fig tree pruner. Jacob was a liar. David had an affair. Solomon had too much money. Abraham was too old. Timothy had ulcers. Joseph was a nuisance. Paul was ugly. Peter was a coward. Lazarus was dead. John was self-righteous. Naomi was a widow. Jonah was disobedient. Miriam was a gossip. Gideon and Thomas were doubters. Jeremiah was suicidal. Elijah suffered from depression. Paul was a murderer. So was Moses, not to mention David. John the Baptist dressed funny. Martha was a worrywart. Samson needed a haircut. Noah had a drinking problem. Zacchaeus was very short. David was only a teenager. So was Mary, the mother of Jesus. So was Daniel. So were many others who were used by God. You see, the question this morning is not whether or not God can use you. The question, quite simply, for all of us, is this. Are we willing to lay down our excuses at the altar? Are we willing to lay down our past mistakes at the altar and become competitors for God? Are we ready to become passionate about serving God and sharing our faith? Let us pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for the example of Moses and for the challenge you've given each of us from your word this morning. We pray that your spirit would work in a mighty way now as we seek to trust you more fully and commit ourselves to you more deeply. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.